Hello and welcome to On Geopolitics, this podcast from the Centre for Geopolitics at Cambridge University with Professor Ali Ansari and myself, Suzanne Rain, where we attempt to look at geopolitical issues in a historical context. And today, Ali, we're talking about realpolitik. And it's Ali's idea, but it's been brought to the forefront of our minds by two events in British foreign policy recently, the first being the visit of the Foreign Secretary James Cleverly to China, which has been controversial, sometimes even within his own party, about whether he should be talking to China or not. And the second is the invitation to the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, to visit the UK in the autumn. So, Ali, we're going to start from the beginning, aren't we, on realpolitik? We are. What, we are. What, what is it and how does it fit into this debate about how foreign policy should be conducted. Well, one of the fascinating things for me, I suppose, is that classically, like all these concepts, it has been interpreted and reinterpreted and, and misinterpreted, if I can say, over the generations. And we tend to sort of conflate it, I suppose, with this notion of realism and the debate that you have in realism and international relations theory and in terms of policy and politics. And of course, the invitation to MBS, the trip to China, how do we deal with authoritarian regimes in some ways? How do we deal with regimes that may not have the same sort of... Uh, values, I suppose, as we think we have, you know, how, how is that related to? That's often seen in terms of a sort of a division between idealism and realism. And it, it's often done in a very sort of, how should we say, sort of uh, a vulgar way. So uh, many people who talk about realism often go back to Machiavelli, obviously, and they talk about Machiavelli as being this sort of rather immoral, you know, the, the, the person who took morality out of politics and therefore basically said the prince has to do what he has to do in order to survive and to thrive. So that, uh, as you say, which is a which is the great bane, obviously, of academic and uh, intellectual discourse, is that these are often taken into the public sphere in ways that are so oversimplified that it makes a mockery of the debate, doesn't it? But as you were saying, if you go back to the concept of real politique itself, which is this sort of uh, the, the German word which we sort of appropriated, it has a much more interesting, uh, a much more interesting origin. And I have to say here, or credit where credit is due. I've been fascinated to read this excellent book by John Bew, actually, on the history of realpolitik, where he sort of outlines not only the origins of the idea in basically mid-19th century Germany, but the way in which it was then disseminated throughout Europe, understood, uh, often misunderstood, it has to be said. And what's fascinating about it is that realpolitik is, to cut to the chase in a way, was really defined as a form, as he says, of liberal realism. It's actually the product of a, a, a German liberal who finds that Ludwig van... Uh, van? <laughs> Ludwig van Rochau, I think we would call him. Getting all Dutch there for a minute. Uh, <laughs> Ludwig von, von Rochau. And uh, his ideas really were, you know, obviously had a liberal program for reform in, in the German states as they were at the time. This fails, he gets very despondent, and then basically he decides to sort of, you know, he criticises those of his supporters and, and, and his fellow travellers for being too wishy-washy really about the reality of politics. And therefore he says, you know, if you want to succeed in these sort of your liberal aims, you have to understand and, you know, interrogate the political realities of your time and to be able to navigate those. So Ali, I'm interrupting you straight away because it links back to an earlier conversation that you and I had, or particularly you were sort of saying that the challenges around the mm. sort of theory and practice in a way, and your sort of real beef with a lot of, with IR theory, as in it's invented to explain the failure of an earlier 
theory. And yes. and I think yes. the thing about von Rochow that's interesting, so he was a national liberal, and of course we say, you know, German thought, but of course Germany, the whole point in the, in the 1850s was that Germany didn't exist as a state. Didn't exist, yeah. And, and he'd been part of the 1848 revolutions, which was this kind of massive surge of kind of liberal hope, which failed. And so when he's coining this term, which is in 1853, I think, and then he wrote another volume uh, 15 years later, he's talking about why we failed, why the Enlightenment didn't lead to better state behaviour, better politics. And I think that's, it's really interesting because it, it reminds me very much of of your sort of statements about the 1990s and, and you know, how we're evolving international relations theory to explain why the earlier why the earlier theory was wrong. Does that make sense? Yeah. It, I mean, it, again, this is the interesting thing about it, is it is you know, the context of how these things develop. And it does remind us, actually, that real politique, as originally conceived, does have a moral basis. I mean, I mean, what, what the fascinating thing, and again, if you look at John's book and his essentially biography of an idea, is that, you know, the, the conflict between, you know, what we would these days understand as between realism and idealism is an invented one. I mean, basically, you know, what he's saying is that Rockau is essentially saying that, you know, we have these ideas. These ideas shape the world in which we live in. You know, I'm a liberal in the 19th century sense of the term. But we have to marry that liberalness to the practicality of getting things done. So in a, in a very curious way, as well for us at the, at the centre, of course, it, it's also very keen on this sort of notion of applied history. It's the application of ideas, but in a practical sense, rather than, and this is the criticism that they have, is that far too many people are, you know, thinking in very, very, I mean, in such idealistic terms that it's completely unrealistic, if I can put it that way. And as a consequence, it will never succeed. And you are bound to disappoint yourself. And in that sense, also, I mean, if you if you read this, there's a sort of a parallel with some of Marx's criticisms of Louis Napoleon and the, you know, the 18th of Brumaire that Marx goes out about, you know, the notion of bourgeois revolutions that essentially they're sort of bound to fail because they get so sort of like idealistic and wishful thinking that the minute they think they've succeeded, they collapse. And actually, you know, in the country I look at, you know, uh, sadly in Iran, this is all true, true. But, you know, you can see it in many, many other countries where liberal agendas fall flat because those who pursue them have a completely unrealistic idea of the problems they face in trying to get these implemented. Mm. So I think that dichotomy is not to say it's a false dichotomy, but I think it's been exaggerated, I think is the case. And, you know, this notion that, you know, what one of the things that I was looking at, you know, in the 19th century, you know, you have this notion of the development of a moral foreign policy, particularly in Britain with the abolition of the slave trade, for instance. So Britain makes big hay of actually going around, you know, big deal of, of actually imposing clauses in various treaties with foreign powers that has that says that, you know, you will abolish the slave trade in your area. And, but of course, there are limits to that because what the British can do is the slave trade on the high seas. It can't do much about it if it's in Central Asia. you know. So it makes a big deal out of this in terms of its ethical position. But obviously, there are limitations as to what it can do. Now, that doesn't mean that it shouldn't do what it's doing. But you know, for some commentators, particularly those who are working in Central Asia and you know, obviously the, the Persians at the time, whatever, they would sort of comment on the fact that you know, you've done so much good work, but you don't help us in abolishing the slave trade in Central Asia. But of course, what could they do? I mean, in, in a sense, you know, you're saying you can't say uh, that simply because it cannot be applied everywhere, it should not be applied somewhere, if I can put it that. You know, that there, are, there is a merit to the pursuit of this policy because it can be achieved, obviously, in, in Okay, in Ali, are areas. you saying that 
the reason that the British did not try and stop the slave trade in Central Asia was because it was too difficult or because they made a different set of calculations. I, I think I think if you look at it in the Central Asian days, it's because they simply couldn't do it. Okay, so it wasn't that they said, well, actually, it's in our interest that it continues to exist here because we want to have good relations with these states or people. Not at all. If you look at the discussions that British officials have, even with the Persians at the time, they acknowledge that, that there's a problem. You know, they acknowledge that, well, you know, it doesn't look great, but, you know, what they're trying to point out is that, well, we have no political power here. Right. I mean, there is nothing we can do here. So again, you know, some people might criticise that and say, well, how can you pursue such a policy because you clearly can't implement it? But of course, you know, the idea of a liberal realism, if I can put it that way, is that, you know, you do what you can do. You mm. achieve what you can because there is merit in that. But of course, we, we can't push it to the extent that, you know, if it becomes impossible to do, then you're bound to fail. And if you're bound to fail, then, of course, that essentially damages your, your policy. But you must never push it quite that far. I mean, you must always operate, as I think Rockow would say, you know, you must always operate within the boundaries of what is possible. You know, politics is the art of the possible in that sense. So I think these aspects of, of, of whether we have a, you know, that debate between these two sort of like poles, which, again, as we're sort of saying, is slightly artificial and we've created these sort of false dichotomies in some ways. But on the other hand, it's also the reality of saying, you know, if we can only get 70% of what we want, that 70% is still good. Mm. Yeah. So I'm wondering if this is a peculiarly British problem, i.e. That, that sort of desire for us somehow to reconcile an ethical or moral standpoint with a pragmatic or realistic pursuit of foreign policy aims. Because I, I was reflecting that Mohammed bin Salman has spent a week in Paris last month with Manuel Macron. So yeah. it doesn't appear that there's sort of the, you know, five years ago, he, well, in some way had a political opponent murdered and dismembered in a consulate in Istanbul. Allegedly. Allegedly. So it doesn't, the calculations that we're making in the UK is essentially this means he's a bad person. This means that we shouldn't deal with him. This, you know, that it is it is wrong for us to maintain relations with somebody who was allegedly involved in that sort of thing. Now, obviously, in France, already a different set of conversations have been held, and he's spent a week in Paris. So, is it strikingly stark in Britain, and has it always been? I mean, I'm well, again, I mean, this is this is really interesting. I mean. And I want to go back to another thing. I mean, I'm sorry, this is going to turn into a bit of a John Bew sort of books I've read by John Bew. But uh, John's other book on Castlereagh is also very interesting because Castlereagh, he describes, I think, if I'm not mistaken, a sort of Whiggish realism or Whiggish realpolitik, actually, if I'm not mistaken. And of course, what he argues there essentially is that British foreign policy at this period is, you know, I mean, liberal is probably the wrong term for this period, but let, let's use that term as a shorthand. But of course, you're dealing with a continent full of essentially you know, absolute monarchs. I mean, you know, you're, you know, the, the the concert of Europe. You know, the Tsar is busy setting up the Holy Alliance and all this sort of thing, and you're dealing with. It. So, how do you deal with that? So, you profess yourself to be, quote, you know, a liberal power in some ways, and how do you how do you pursue that within a setting in which most of your contemporaries are not? Uh, in some ways, also after the Napoleonic Wars, of course, you have the reaction in you know the early you know Metternich and all this sort. Of thing. 
But of course, you know, Metternich is described as, you know, this idea of, you know, real politique. Of course, he isn't. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, you know, we are retrospectively ascribing certain methods of politics to characters who I think at the time, you know, they're, they're, they're anachronistic in that sense. I mean, it wouldn't work. But I find that also that, that interesting that, A, I think Britain and, you know, America, as, you know, follow, I mean, the, 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 the sort of Anglo-American, the transatlantic powers in that sense, have this sort of notion of themselves as liberal powers and therefore have a certain standard which they wish to adhere to. But here's the crux. You operate within a context that is illiberal. So how do you, how do you manage that? And the sort of the, the, it is that sort of tension which I think in some ways the whole concept of realpolitik is trying to reconcile. You know, we are liberals, but we operate within an illiberal environment. So how do we reconcile that? And, you know, the truth of the matter is, it is a tension. It's not always going to be satisfactorily resolved, but there are also compromises that are involved in it. And I think you're right in the sense that because of our intellectual political inheritance on this side of the channel, in a sense, which is a little bit more, how should we say, idealistic, it's always going to affect us a little bit more. I mean, people are going to think about it. And the interesting thing is, is that, you know, real politique, as John says in his book, we all need a dose of real politique, but we don't need to overdose on it, you know? <laughs> which is perhaps what we might say is the French do. They overdose on it, you know, and slightly go over the top. So it is a balance. It's a balance of having to navigate that. And that requires, obviously, people like your good self, Suzanne, when you were out there in government, deciding where that balance lies. I strongly believe that you can't be purist on anything because if you're if you exactly. you say oh, I have strong moral views and these people I like and these people I don't like therefore I'm not talking to the people I don't like you know that is a recipe for disaster because it means you'll never understand the people you don't like and the divisions harden. However, that's in itself complicated, isn't it? Because you know Russia's invaded Ukraine. We're not you know what should you do? in a position like that. And in a way, the Russian invasion of a neighbouring country makes it easier for us to work out where we stand, because it's an example where brutal power politics and the ethical position allied. You know, it is strongly in our interest to support Ukraine, although maybe this is debatable, but I think strongly in our interest to support Ukraine to check Russian behaviour. And ethically, it's obviously the right thing to do because the Russians are murdering citizens of a neighbouring country. So so that's sort of straightforward in a sense that the power position and the ethical position are not in tension. And you can't do any of this without talking about Robin Cook's ethical foreign policy and yeah, the I was going to get to that, yeah. Labour Party led invasion of Iraq, but I mean I I think that there is an argument to be made that that the driver for that was essentially a liberal one at the heart of it. I'm not Tony Blair. I'm not going to try and explain exactly how he's thinking, but but that sort of sense that the world will be a better place if people are freed from tyranny and are enabled to express themselves in a liberal democratic way. Uh, I think that was at the heart of it. And then how do you do that? Well, you do that through the means of war. And so you automatically open yourself up to very valid accusations then of hypocrisy. And Ali, I want to, I really want to hear your thoughts on, on hypocrisy because I don't think it's possible to pursue an ethical foreign policy in a messy, awful modern world 
without constantly and immediately having to explain why you've said one thing and are doing another? Well, I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I, you won't be surprised to hear that I, I sort of basically agree with everything you've just said, you know. But, you know, the point is, if you do have ideals, and if you do have ideals that you aspire to, then you're always going to open yourself up to the charge of hypocrisy. But you can never always achieve them. I mean, as you say, if you're not a purist, and you can't be a purist in the world, in the reality of the world that we live in, and we are, you know, geopolitics and historical context, and we want to operate in the real world, um, there will be compromises that will be made, and that will o- always open you up to the charge. So, if you go back to the art, you know that that example I gave about the slave trade. Here, you have a great power, you know, talking about the abolition of the slave trade, and then another power says, "But why don't you help us stop the slave trade here?" Well, obviously, they say, "Well, because we can't." I mean, you know, it's it's very difficult for us to do it here, and you know, we don't have, you know, we we on the high seas, you know, we are effectively in control. You know, we 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 have we have reach. In Asia, we don't. I mean, it's as simple as that. So that will always open you up, I think, and there are always these tensions. But the other thing that you said, and I think it's very, very important, is that conflict often clarifies, and conflict clarifies in a way that is obviously very useful for this sort of thing. I mean, the other critical moment is 1939, of course, in 1940. You know, when you know what Churchill does, of course, the great strength of his oratory and his position is that he he offers that clarification. There's no ambiguity about it. And that clarification, what it does, of course, is it brings the ideal and the real, the sort of the the real politique, if you will, in the in the in the traditional sense, together. I mean, what it does, and this has always been my argument, by the way, and I I struggle sometimes to get this across, but it's that actually British ideals and British interests, if you put it that way, uh, you know, that sort of conflict that people, beg your pardon, sometimes talk about, actually in the long term doesn't exist because clearly it is in British interests. Also, to have, you know, more democracies, if I can put it that way. And by democracy, I don't just mean people going to the ballot box. I mean a, a concept in which, you know, human security, human rights, and all this sort of thing are accepted, and 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 a, and a rules based, you know, international order. So, those ideals should not be in conflict with sort of hard nosed realism, if I can use that paraphrase. And I think again, you know, the war in Ukraine clarified that for a moment. It made people could feel confident and certain in the position they were taking. Uh, I know there are people who doubt it, and I know people who criticize it, and I know there are people who challenge it on what we may term as a sort of that debate within international relations theory between realism and idealism, whatever. I don't think that's really what we're talking about here anyway. I mean, I think what's interesting about the history of real politique, as we've understood it, or we're trying to describe it here, is that these dichotomies are actually a little bit, as we say, invented that actually the origin of the term, which I think, again, is John Bew's argument, is if we go back to von uh, uh, Rockau, actually the origins of the term are much more interesting, you know, and there shouldn't be a conflict. There shouldn't be a conflict between the two. So, Ali, this makes me think about the word pragmatism. And we talk a lot about pragmatism as being one of the central tenets of British foreign policy. I think, or, or you know, or aspirations of British foreign policy. I don't know. And it strikes me that people talk about pragmatism as a, I think I might have said this before, as a as a concept, as though pragmatism would tell you what the correct thing to do in a scenario is. Yeah. But in fact, in any scenario, and James Cleverly going to China is, is a really good example of that. What is the pragmatic thing to do? 
is the pragmatic thing to go to China to make friends with China to increase investments you know in both directions or is the pragmatic thing you know it depends what what your aims are really I suppose and no, it doesn't depend what you are. You can have the same aim, but the mm. question is, what is the best way to achieve the aim? The best achieve, yeah, that's right. Uh, so it strikes me that we've fallen into using a set of terms, and I, again, I don't know whether you would... Would you consider realism and pragmatism to be interchangeable terms? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I think it depends very much on the context of how you're using those terms. If we were talking in international relations context, then they wouldn't be really. Because, you know, realism has very, very specific connotations within international relations theory. I think there's clearly overlaps between them. But I think it would be quite different. I mean, when you talk the way you've just mentioned, it reminds me of this whole notion of, you know, the Palmerstonian, you know, edict that, you know, Britain doesn't have friends, it only has interests. Yeah. Now, of course, what does that mean? I mean, you know, that's interesting because, of course, Palmerston is like, you know, Whiggish, you know, red-blooded Whiggish liberal imperialism par excellence, you know, I mean, he's, you know, he's clearly a man full of ideas, shall we say, no ideas about the world. And, uh, you know, I think his concept really, I mean, this idea is that, again, is something that I think is reflected in this whole discussion of real polity, that Britain as a liberal power doesn't have that many friends. I mean, obviously the situation arguably is, is, is different today that, well, obviously it is than it was in the mid 19th century, but nonetheless, it's this idea that you know, how do you operate as a liberal power or as a aspiring liberal power in an illiberal world? And so what Palmerston is saying is that, you know, we don't have, you know, we we have interests and we deal with those interests. And I think he's obviously, how should we say, you know, there's a bit of a rhetorical device going on there, obviously. And, you know, he's he's trying to stress a particular position. But at the same time, it's the, I think it's this notion of trying to reconcile the two. And in some ways, in some ways, you can see Palmerston as a continuation of the whole castle ray ethos of how you apply British foreign policy, perhaps in a slightly more robust and, and uh, clarified sense. The, the, the pity about today, really, I suppose, is if you say cleverly going to China and whatever, is one would like to think that a lot of these ideas are understood and are being pursued. You know, who knows? John Buett Downing Street, possibly very much so, you know. But, you know, whether the politicians themselves have absorbed these and are projecting these is another matter, I suppose, at the end of the day, is one, you know, we might reasonably question. I mean... Can I ask a question? Can I ask... So, you yeah. so thinking about realpolitik and this idea that essentially you, you make choices based on your interests. Yeah. And then you said it's about Britain doesn't have... We don't have friends. But choices yes. based on interests that are shaped by your values. I mean, that, that, that's the key, isn't it, right? So then there's this question about having friends. Yeah. And, and you know whether or not you should have friends or whether you and and I think what's quite striking about the UK is that we appear relatively consistently to have tried to pursue an interest-based foreign, foreign policy in conjunction with an ethical foreign policy which is very difficult because the one keeps essentially putting a break on the other. But the result is that actually the UK doesn't have a lot of friends. And I wanted to ask your view on that compared with somewhere like Iran, mm -hmm. which has pursued essentially a very strong, you know, they absolutely know what they believe and what they want. Mm -hmm. And they have developed a network of allies 
and dependent allies, I suppose. And whether you call them friends is another matter. But through absolute consistency, and I contrast that with the UK, which, I mean, the UK's position on Egypt for the last 20 years has been a fascinating example of how difficult it is to remain friends with a nation state when its leaders change. And then, so we had that, that period where, you know, you'd had this sort of Tahrir Square, brilliant mm. democracy, and, and we embraced that. And the UK said, this is terrific. We're going to be friends with Egypt. And then the Muslim Brotherhood came in and, and it became immediately very complicated again, because essentially you're maintaining relationships with a state who has very different values to you. And now it's all swung back the other way. So, so that question about <laughs> being friends mm. is, I think, a really interesting and difficult one in and so what how do you how do you well i mean first of all i'd say that i don't think that tension between uh um interest and uh you know the the, the idealism and the um uh, the interest is quite so is 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 quite as sparse or uh, quite as wide as, as as maybe you've suggested i mean i i think that you know there is more tied up in them i mean the, 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 there is more harmony if i can put it that way between these two ideas it's the way in which we pursue it obviously and you know just as you know, Bu says we mustn't overdose on real politique. We mustn't overdose on idealism either. I mean, it's a question again of balance. Now, the interesting case with Iran, of course, and it is true. I mean, obviously, Iran also has, in its own view, a moral foreign policy because it pursues a moral worldview based on a particular brand of revolutionary Shiism, and it sticks very hard to that. And it proclaims itself, you know, to have these friends because of a consistency. And if you look at the Russian relationship with Iran, of course, that's very interesting because they seem to stick to each other, you know, fairly like you know, like limpet mines and so. But the fact is, actually, in, in reality, you know, that friendship has its limitations. I mean, it has very, very strong limitations if you look at the way in which the Russians have also behaved towards the Iranians, but also how other powers have behaved towards the Iranians. There's a huge amount of caution, a huge amount of suspicion. The differences, I suppose, and, and, and this is also a, a, a criticism that comes out of, of John's book, actually, is that probably, and I would say this, that Iran's understanding of regional dynamics and regional politics in the Middle East, in its own area, is probably better than that that was pursued by Washington and perhaps London, you know, in the post-Iraq uh, war period. So we overdosed on idealism really going into, and I agree with you actually on the whole Iraq war, that, you know, there was a strong liberal interventionist input into that. The Iranians never felt that, by the way. I mean, the Iranians always said to me, no, no, this is all about, you know, uh, hard-nosed realism and oil and all this sort of thing. And I kept trying to say to them, no, no, it, it's bound into something a bit broader about the pursuit of democracy. I mean, you, you have to understand this or revolutionary, almost this revolutionary idealism that the Americans were pursuing. But, you know, the criticism there is that the Iranians had a better grasp of the intricacies and the dynamics of politics on the ground in the Middle East than the coalition of the willing did, if I can put it that way. And that, in a sense, again, is a criticism that Bu puts in, that he says that actually what, what we did there was a failure of realpolitik as defined by von Rockau, that you know we never did a systematic understanding of the various sort of the nature of power and the construction of power on the ground. Now, where I would sort of caveat that is that it's not so much that the Iranians actually did this dissection of, you know, you know, it, it, it's that because they were part of that fabric, they didn't need to do any sort of extra work. I mean, they, they sort of understood it because it was them, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, these sort of things are actually extensions of, you know, the, the region that they're living in. So they sort of understood how it works. We didn't. 
But not only did we not, I think the criticism is not that we did not, it's that we didn't actually do, in a sense, or we didn't actually attempt to try and understand it. I don't, I don't know if that's fair. You may disagree with that. But, you know, when I think about the people that the Americans were sending out to Iraq, you know, to sort out, you know, various civil governmental projects, most of whom were sort of straight out of college or something, and, and didn't seem to have, uh, a, you know, had a smattering of Arabic between them. It doesn't build comfort. You know, you, you sort of feel that they're not really dealing with the reality as they find it. Well, I think... I think it is hard to understand the Middle East. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. I, mean, I think it is. it is hard, but but that again, that that sort of brings. There's I mean, this is this is such a massive subject, but mm. but that ethical moral piece to me, it the risk is that you are making judgments based on your own values about what is best for other people, and the further away the other people are, and the the more different they're life experiences are, the harder it's going to be to get that right, I suppose. The other question I had about your observations there on on Iran, though, is about ruthlessness. Mm-hmm. And this, I think, does loop mm-hmm. back to the, the realism point that, you know, if you if you get this right, you're prepared to be incredibly ruthless and you're prepared to be violent and you're, you know, and you could argue that America, during the war on terror, 20 years, wherever it's bounded, was prepared to be extremely violent, mm. but maybe wasn't ruthless, <laughs> or maybe was ruthless and then got checked by sort of the rule of law, and that made it less effective. But, but I think are you are we not confusing there though the sort of notion of uh, ruthlessness, let's say, as a sort of a radical realism that they were being really hard nosed, sort of like going back to sort of a Machiavellian, you know. It, where was the place they went into and basically almost demolished? I can't remember where it was now, but there was a the period where there was a sort of a centre of, you know, the Bartist or like, well, it wasn't Bartist resistance, but there was some place where they went into, and it was it was generally you know they sent in the Marines or something or other, and it, it all became extremely violent. That's not really, you know, as I see it, realpolitik. Mm. I mean that that's, you know, it, again it comes out in this that when von Rockau is discussing the an- analysis of power, it's very interesting. He says. You know, what we need to do is we need to map out power. And power isn't just simply military or political. Yeah. Power is how it's diffused. And we have to understand that. So it may have been that the crushing of particular militias or other things would have served that wider purpose. But it would only have served that wider purpose if we had done a proper assessment of what that the impact of that was going to be in the long term. And arguably, that sort of exercise of very, very violent power uh, in some ways symbolic, in some ways obviously with very practical effects, but maybe it didn't have the sort of consequences that people wanted it to have. I mean, that, that, that's what I'm saying. I mean, I'm saying we shouldn't, you know, when we're looking at realpolitik, I think it's a much broader concept than that. I mean, it has a much broader application than simply, you know, the exercise of hard, ruthless power. And again, to go back to Iran or to go back to Russia, or you know, if we say, for instance, what's gone on in Syria, you know, the exercise of very violent power realism on the one hand, Assad is there, but what is he there in? Mm. <laughs> I mean, do, do, do you see what I mean? I mean, what, what sort of victory has he won? And I mean, if you look at Syria at the moment, I think they're back to demonstrations. Mm. I mean, it's, it's going back to a situation where it's very unstable because, uh, to paraphrase one of my favourite phrases uh, from Tacitus, you know, they create a desolation and call it peace. I mean, okay. So you're interesting in this, Ali, because I think what you said to me earlier is mm. we could use Putin as an extreme mm. or an example of extreme realpolitik. And ultimately, this doesn't work 
because at the end of the day, we all need to have some kind of moral framework. And if your moral framework is just, you know, violence, oppression, mm. invasion. Well, what I would say is Putin, I mean, if we to go back to the definition of realpolitik as defined by, as you say, you know, by von Rockau, then Putin's exercise of his power in Ukraine is not that, actually. It's not an exercise in realpolitik because he completely misunderstood the politics in the Ukraine. Didn't he? I mean, you could say that, could you not? What what, what Putin has done is hard-nosed realism on a very vulgar scale. And then basically not done properly because he failed to understand the impact that it would have on NATO and other alliances. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in that sense, in terms of realpolitik and its, as you say, traditional orthodox understanding of it, you know, going back to its roots, what Putin did is is the antithesis of realpolitik. Or it's just bad realpolitik. Yeah, you could say that. Yeah, because he's he's done it very well in other. I mean, he's done it very well yeah. in Africa and the Middle East, hasn't he? Yeah, you could. I mean, you could say that. I mean, you could you could certainly argue that um, he's understood the Middle East certainly better than the West. Again, I I would probably dispute that to some extent, but he's certainly done better than the West. I mean, I don't think we can dispute that. <laughs> Uh, you know, I mean, in in the short term, certainly. Okay, Ali. But, so next question. The other thing that you said, yeah, because um, you yeah. these are these are your kind of sort of summary points. My bullet points. Yeah, yeah. An ethical, moral, and foreign policy only becomes possible with capability and will. So coming back to the UK and yeah, 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 the yeah. visit of Mohammed bin Salman or James Cleverley's new approach to China. What are the capability and will parts that are needed? Well, I think, you know, I suppose what I was trying to say there is that, you know, we have to have, it's no good just having the political will to do it. We have to be able to be in a, in a, in a situation where we can do it. I mean, in some ways, the approach to a, I mean, and as you said, you know, we're never purist about these things, but to aspire to a very sort of strong ethical position on the world and to be able to achieve these things, one has to be in a position to to be able to deliver. And let's face it, you know, if Castlereagh and Palmerston had limitations in the 19th century, then bloody hell, we have massive limitations today, don't we? I mean, it's not something that, you know, Britain is going to be able to sort of manage. So we have to, you know, the, I suppose the crux of it is we have to live in the world as we find it, mm. but confident in our own position. And I suppose this is the problem, really, in some ways. I mean, in some ways, the, the 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 position of the West, let's say the Western Alliance, but Britain in particular, is one that we're so racked by self doubt that you know the hypocrisy that is a consequence of this policy is coming back to bite us in a way that you know we don't fully uh, we can't really deal with. So you know it, it is having an effect, and I think it's you know when cleverly goes to China, um, there will be people that say, well, you mustn't, you know. Uh, this very authoritative power, look what they've done in Hong Kong, look what they're doing in, you know, Western China and this sort of thing. On the other hand, you know, clearly I think it would be ludicrous actually for Britain not to engage in some way or form with China. Not least because all our friends and allies are doing. So exactly. you know, I mean, yes, absolutely. And that's another good point. I mean, that's another good point. You're not going to isolate yourself, are you? But the question is, is how you do it and how you manage it and what are the limitations of that, both in terms of, you know, how you want to do it so you don't compromise yourself too much, but also um, you know, compromise yourself in either direction, if I can put it that way. Not your values, but also not your inner. And again, it, it comes to this, I suppose, this notion of politics as the art of the possible and statecraft and leadership 
as as something that actually is an is an art, not a science. And again, that goes back. You know, it's a wonderful thing, which obviously is music to my ears of of, of Rockout saying, you know, that politics is not a science. Mm. Well, so I'm going to end now, Ali, for us by referring everyone back to the podcast we did a couple of weeks ago with Professor Mike Hume, yeah. who, yes, who was that's who basically one. made the same observation about climate change. He said the world is a yes. messy place, and if you start right. off with these massive ideals, whatever they are, it actually makes you less likely to achieve anything than if you say, well, let's really understand. Let's really understand how people use cooking oil in India. Let's really understand what's driving behavior in certain places. And then we can, you know, what people need. And then we can understand how best to approach it. And when we're talking now, I just, you know, I keep thinking these kind of grand philosophical concepts, which are sort of an academic thing, only kind of fit with retrospects foreign policy decisions that are being taken on a daily basis in a messy world and, you know when you know mm. when you're sitting in the UK and you learn that Mohammed bin Salman has spent a week already in Paris with president macron does that change the your own thinking about whether you should invite mm. you know all that sort of stuff that's just lots of micro decisions on a daily basis that end up adding up to a way of charting relationships through the messy world. So that would be my take on it all. And you can call it realpolitik or realism or pragmatism, or you can just call it <laughs> trying mm. to make the best out of the situation. Trying to make sense. <laughs> trying to make sense of it all. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I think you're, yeah, I think that that's right. I mean, politics is messy. International relations is messy. But, you know, realpolitik, I think, to go back to that, I think offers us a way to think through it in a, a reasonably coherent way. I mean, on on the basis that none of these categories are exact. And know, none of them are. We have managed to do 43 minutes of conversation without mentioning Bismarck. So hats know, off that, to us. That's a <laughs> well done, yeah. Well, I discovered that actually he never used the term. So there you are. I mean, I, I, I had no idea that it used to be. But, um, you know, yes, absolutely. Uh, but now you've just mentioned him, Ben. Fantastic. No, we'll do Bismarck another day. Yeah. Lovely, Ali. Thank you so much. Thank you. See you again soon. See you again soon.